Good evening. Last weekend we had a lay initiation ceremony in which um, people took what we call the great Bodhisattva precepts. And I raised the question briefly, you know, what is a Bodhisattva? And that question is still on my mind. And I want to uh, share it with you. But as a little aside, um, I think for us in the West, uh, to explore a teaching like Buddhism is both difficult, you know, nearly impossible, and also very, very fruitful. And the reason it's fruitful is that a word like bodhisattva or Buddha or nirvana or emptiness, these words, they are foreign enough that we don't really understand them. This is good. Because if you, if your mind moves immediately to understanding, you don't really explore. It's like, oh, I know what that is. So part of, part of the, uh, process and practice of Buddhism in the West is to translate and reconstruct and to make what Buddhism brings not to appropriate it, but to um, to make it um, accessible in our own lives and our own culture. And this is a very, uh, I think this is a very productive process. It will change Buddhism. As it has, you know, as Buddhism has moved from culture to culture, Buddhism has changed. So we, we don't have... We don't want to have the fantasy that we're going to practice some sort of original or true Buddhism. No, we're going to practice Western Buddhism. But it has, because it's foreign, it has the power to change how we look at ourselves and the world. So, um, you know, bodhisattva is, is such a word. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean for you? What are you going to do with it? And why is it even interesting to ask the question, uh, what a bodhisattva is? Well, in my view, what this word points to is um, an ideal human, uh, an ideal human being. And in a personal way, you could ask yourself, what kind of, what kind of human being do I want to choose to be? What kind of human being do you want to be? Well, Buddhism makes a suggestion, right? Buddhism says, well, you might be, you might want to be a bodhisattva. <laughs> when you look at that same question from the point of view of Christianity, um, this ideal person, may be a person who lives in accord with God's will. 
mean, the difficulty there is to know what God's will is. Yeah, maybe it's written in a book. It's in, it's in the Bible. What God's will is is in the Bible. So then you need someone who interprets the Bible, and you know the priest knows what God's will is, you know, or something. You know, we this becomes an inquiry: what God's will is, or you or you find it in your own heart. Different methods. <laughs> Look it up in a book. Look it up in your heart. Uh, in the West, and now I think in the globalized world, um, the worldview that's taking over is humanism. In other words, we're not looking toward God so much anymore. We still tolerate God and our gods. But really we're trying to make, we're now holding human beings responsible for making meaning. And we also we put ourselves in that position. We can make the meaning. The world is meaningless, but we can make it meaningful. <laughs> and what that results in, like the ideal person, the ideal humanist person, would be a person that can meaningfully participate in in democratic election processes. You know, you're informed enough to participate and articulate your will, and together we will shape. The society, and you are um, willing to and able to meaningfully participate as an investor and as a consumer in the free market, and you uh, are willing to be educated, to think for yourself, to make judgments about good and bad. You know, this is a big difference. It's not, we're not looking toward God to tell us what's good and bad. We're looking toward ourselves. Like, we're, we're examining our feelings. Like, what do I feel is good? What do I feel is bad? <clears throat> so, um, so what does the Bodhisattva, as, as a, as a concept and as an ideal, what does the Bodhisattva bring to us in the West? You know, I'm, I'm interested in Buddhism because I think um, the world as it is organized through humanism is in a big crisis. And I'm interested in whether Buddhism can um, contribute something to move us forward in a beneficial way. And the reason it's in a crisis is because this idea of meaningfully participating in the political process just degenerates into, you know, wanting to have as much power as possible. And to meaningfully participate in the market means just to want to have as much money as possible. And to meaningfully participate in decision-making about good and bad and and uh, beautiful and ugly just uh, results in... Uh, uh, a, a drivenness to um, accumulate pleasure, pleasurable experience for yourself. If it feels good, I want it. So this, you know, powerful, potentially rich, and sufficiently entertained and pleasured human being, you know, has become our ideal. 
you know, what kind of human being do you want to be? So the way, the way I look at the Bodhisattva as an ideal for myself and now, you know, sharing it with you is, um, a Bodhisattva is somebody who is committed to transformation. And transformation, by transformation, I don't mean just any kind of profound change. I mean intentional change. So let's let's look at these let's look at these two words, uh, change and intention. Uh, probably the most important and fundamental worldview in Buddhism is that everything changes. You know, some people say, the only thing that doesn't change is change. Of course, this is complete nonsense, right? Because change isn't a thing. Change isn't a thing. Change is, um, uh, change is the experience that, that no moment is the same. Or say, to say it in another, uh, in another way, Every moment is unique. And there's two ways uh, that Buddhism thinks about uh, change. One is captured by the word impermanence. And impermanence points to um, everything is fleeting, so it's changing despite your desire for it not to change. It's impermanent. Our biological lives are impermanent. Even though we might want to stay alive, we will die. Even though we might want to stay healthy, we get sick. Even though we enjoy this particular moment, you know, I hope you enjoy this moment, but any moment, even though we enjoy it, it actually will not stay. It will change. And the other word that I think is equally important uh, to impermanence is momentariness. In other words, change occurs in a moment-to-moment -moment dynamic. So this momentariness points to uniqueness. Not one moment is the same as another moment. So, we're always already changeable. We're always already changing. It's not something you decide to do, you know, oh, I want to change. No, that's already happening. You cannot. I mean, just breathing you change. You can't, 
if you if you're alive, you you know you must change. But when you die, you change too. You know, worms, fire, <laughs> take hold of your body as change continues. You may have ideas for yourself, like I want to be this person, I want to be that person, I want to accomplish this in life. Yeah, you you can do all that, but it's not going to stay. It's going to disappear in permanence, and it's going to be just uniquely present for a moment. I always watch these, you know, I kind of like to the degree that I have any sense of sports that are happening in our world. You know, athletes that are striving to win something. So they're winning the World Cup or winning Wimbledon. You know, great achievement, you know. And then it's like this elated moment of joy and victory, you know, and then it's gone. And then they have to do it again, you know, next year or four years. Like you have to do it again. Nobody seems to be satisfied with just winning Wimbledon once, you know. You have to do it again. 24 times. This is a kind of holding on, you know. It's like the moment is unique and now it needs to be repeated and repeated and repeated. So... Now, intention is, um, intention, the Latin word, um, intendere means to stretch toward. So the, 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 the most important quality in intention is direction, directionality. So our life is, our life appears to us from moment to moment through what we give attention to. So right now I'm giving attention to this room in which you're sitting and also to, you know, sort of my belly in which meaning is generated. <laughs> so I, I articulate, you know, I articulate something that comes together from feeling you and feeling my belly and so I say something. But that's, there's an attentional process. And attention is so important because what you give attention to is what your life is at that moment. So it's in, in some sense, it's, it's one of the most valuable resources there is. What you give attention to is what your life is at that moment. So if someone can exert enough power to capture your attention, like advertising, they have your life captivated for that moment. If you are distracted by anything, not just, you know, um, advertising, you hand attention, you hand attention over to somebody or something else. So they now have you for a certain amount of time. 
So to to own your attention is maybe one. It maybe it's the most important thing. This is why our practices, meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is all about owning your attention. In this owning, um, this owning has something to do with intention because it's it's about how you direct your attention from moment to moment. So right now my attention is on something, you know, I'm looking at you, attention is there, has a certain kind of focus, and then where does it move next? Where it moves next has something to do with what my intention is. So intention gives direction to attention, to the flow of attention. I have a friend, acquaintance, you know, I haven't seen him in a long time, but I went to school with him in Germany. And his name is Florian Werner, who does not mean anything to you, but he's a, he's a, an author. He's written six or seven books or something. And his latest book is called The Path of Least Resistance. And it's a funny book. It's strange. Um, he, uh, he's doing this experiment of just walking out the door without a map. And I don't know, without money or, you know, with very little. And, and then he gives himself some rules, you know. When you come to a crossroads, choose the path of least resistance, you know. Go downhill, never uphill. When the wind blows from the west, go east. <laughs> Etc. Like he has ten rules and he's following, he's doing a walk in according, in accordance with these rules that spell out the path of least resistance. And he's then, then he's observing what happens. You know, it's like, how to make it easy for yourself, you know, find out whether that works. Something like that. That's the book. <clears throat> And I thought, this is interesting, you know, because this is a clearly spelled out intention for, you know, a journey, for the journey of attention. So, like, how are you going to make a decision? Well, you're going to choose the path of least resistance. I'm not recommending that. I'm just giving that as an odd example. But so, we're... As a bodhisattva, you're, you're doing something similar. You're asking, you're setting certain intentions that will guide how you're going to relate to unique attentional moments as they appear for you, because that's what your life is. There are, uh, it's a continue, it's a, it's a succession of attentional moments. How are you going to relate to them? So, you know, if you simplify this, it's like whenever you come to a, um, a fork in the road, you always go right. You always go right. That would be an intention. So I said, a bodhisattva is someone who's committed to intentional change, to transformation. 
And what is this, what is this intention directed toward? It's directed toward three things. Um, liberation from suffering. To to live in accord with how things actually exist, and three to live for the benefit of all beings. As I said in relationship to our ordination ceremony, this is this is basically the three treasures. This is Buddha Dharma and Sangha to liberate. Yourself from suffering is Buddha. To awaken to the, to the, to awaken to non-suffering is to take refuge in Buddha. To live in accord with how things actually exist, which is to free yourself from delusion. To not live in uh, along uh, the lines of certain fantasies of how you want the world to be, but to actually live in accord with how things exist is uh, is to take refuge in the Dharma. Of course, here we have similarly to like knowing how, what God's will is, we have the difficulty of knowing how things actually exist. <laughs> how will we know that? And to live in accord, uh, to live for the benefit of all beings is to take refuge in the Sangha. Now, you know, traditionally in early Buddhism, the Bodhisattva is kind of like, it's, it's a, it's a person aspiring to be a Buddha. And then in Mahayana Buddhism, this is a movement that starts you know, in the second century. Mahayana Buddhism, um, the Bodhisattva becomes actually the ideal practitioner. It's the Bodhisattva actually replace, almost replaces the Buddha as the ideal practitioner. And how so? It's because um, there there is this recognition that when you just strive for liberation of suffering for yourself, that's too limited of you. Actually, it's the insight that it's impossible to just liberate yourself from suffering. Because we live undivided from, self and other live uh, in an undivided activity. So as long as others suffer, you can't be liberated from suffering. Not entirely. So the intention gets expanded. It gets expanded from, I'm going to uh, liberate myself from suffering to... um, 
I'm going to work for the benefit of all beings, which includes the self, but it also includes everyone and everything. So this this notion of undividedness is quite complicated. It's not really possible to grasp it intellectually. Um, you know, the easy the easy way to try to capture it intellectually is to say we're all one, but that's not true. You know, we're not all one. I mean, I don't pay your bills. And you don't go to the toilet for me. <laughs> We're separate. But we're not entirely separate. We're profoundly not separate. Because we, we, um, we, influ- we are, you know, as Buddhism would say, we're, we're interdependent. Everything is always resonant with everything else. This is actually how change occurs. That's the most important concept in, in Buddhism, change. It's because things are interdependent is why they're changing. Because when this changes, that changes. And when that changes, this changes. And so everything is always changing. Everything is always metabolizing everything. In that sense, we are profoundly connected. We're not separate. So in Zen, we say we're not one and not two. Not two-ness is not oneness. Undividedness is not we're the same. So we're, we're constantly living in this unresolved, in this unresolved dynamic of being undivided. Both separate and connected at the same time. So the Bodhisattva, instead of, you know, instead of saying, oh, I'm going to take care of myself, liberate myself, and then enter nirvana, the Bodhisattva, the mythical idea of the Bodhisattva is that the Bodhisattva refuses to enter nirvana until all beings are liberated. Because we're all, we're only going to enter Nirvana together, not as individual beings. Like, I'm going to get ahead of you by entering Nirvana. Bye-bye. This also, you know, this profoundly uh, uh, calls into question what Nirvana is, you know, because one of the ideas of Nirvana is that it's somehow a realm that we cross into, like there's samsara, the world of suffering, and then there's Nirvana, the world of liberation, and we're going to cross over, you know, that's the idea, we'll cross over this river with a raft from one side to the other. This is a different, that image means that Nirvana is a different realm. And in Mahayana Buddhism, um, that starts to be really questioned. You know, Nagarjuna, this great Buddhist teacher of the second century, said, famously said, the limits or the boundaries of samsara, the boundaries of the world of suffering, are exactly the same as the boundaries of nirvana, the uh, world of liberation. So if it's not about 
crossing over into a different realm, then it's about shifting into a different mental posture. It's exactly the same world, samsara and nirvana, exactly the same world, but the way you are crossing over now is not by going somewhere else, like to heaven, to nirvana, this other realm that we can use to escape this world. No, we're just we're just we're just practicing to shift into a different mental posture. The same world of suffering can be the world of liberation. So um, we have the we have the four bodhisattva vows. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. This is in a slightly different order, but it's exactly what I've just talked about. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. This is to end suffering. You know, the desire, grasping, resistance, that's identified as the cause of suffering. So, you know, we're always going to have desires, but uh, the question is, how will you relate to what appears from moment to moment in your attentional sphere? Will you relate it with, will you relate to it with grasping or and resisting, or will you just let it be there? Just let it be there. This is liberation from suffering, in a nutshell. So desires are inexhaustible. They will always come up. I vow to not engage them, let's say. This is uh, freedom from suffering. Dharma gates are, um, what do we say, boundless. I vow to enter them. A Dharma gate is an attentional moment. A Dharma gate is an attentional moment that you can enter into with attention and with intention. Okay. If you if you form intentions like freedom from suffering, living in accord with how things actually exist, uh, living for the benefit of all beings. This, these intentions need to be, these intentions need to in, in, be implanted deeply enough that they get into touch with how things actually exist, which is they exist in attentional moments. This intention actually has to be available as an, as an attentional moment presents itself. You know, this is why New Year's resolutions don't work. <clears throat> because at New Year's Eve, you decide, okay, I'm going to, take care of myself better, I'm going to be on a diet, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to be nicer to people, I'm going to spend more time with my family. So you say all these things, you know, your narrative self establishes this idea. It's an intention, but it's not really getting in touch with your with the attentional moment. So in the moment when you really want to... Um, sit on the couch and eat a bag of chips and turn on the TV, you know, let's just make something. 
stupid up. You're not really noticing that that's what you're doing. You're just doing it habitually. And before you, before you notice it, you're already doing it and your attention, intention comes too late. You have to be, your intention, if it's real, has to be right there when the moment arises in which a choicefulness is actually possible. If you notice it afterwards, you're like, oh, I failed again. All right, so you understand the idea, right? The question is how to do that. How do you make an intention a profound enough vow that it's actually available from moment to moment where your reactive patterns are going to determine what you're doing with an attentional moment? Will you, will this attentional moment get developed through your habits or will it get developed through your vows? Two things are necessary. One is that you cultivate attentional skills. This is what meditation and mindfulness are about. And that you become clear about your intentions. You know, many of us are still battling, you know. Like, what do I really want to do? It's not so clear. Once you, once you really know what you want to do, if you know that you want to be a bodhisattva, let's use a strange word, you know, I've explained it enough now. If you know that you want to be a bodhisattva, you need to remind you. You need to remind yourself all the time. <coughs> You know, that's why we do this kind of chanting stuff. Sentient being, you know, I vow to liberate them. Like, you remind yourself. <coughs> but it's not working much as a reminder if we don't translate this, these vows, these ideas of being a bodhisattva in something that's really tangible. This is what I've been trying to do tonight. Make it more accessible. Open it up. You know, you need to, you need to ask the question. You know, what do I really want to do with my life? What's most important? Successfully participate in the free market. You know, it's not bad. You know, it's useful. Is it your highest aspiration, though? If you want to make your life about liberating yourself from suffering, sharing that with all beings, and living in accord with how things actually exist, it takes some um, it takes some effort of clarifying what that means, what it means for you, what what shape it will take, how you will remind yourself, how you will how you will how you bring these intentions in touch with your life, how it is actually unfolding, which is from moment to moment. Like I said, you know, I'm personally quite concerned about how the effect that our humanist 
orientation and worldview, what kind of effect it has on our shared world. Because this human being that starts to, almost like willy-nilly, you know, because this is, the society is like this, and it shapes us, we just go along with it. We're just, you know, trying to uh, find a niche in which we feel powerful enough, in which we successful enough participate in the free market in which we entertain ourselves enough to not get bored and can feel that we have a colorful, meaningful life. Uh, While we're doing that, while we're striving like this, while we're making ourselves so important, we actually separate ourselves from the, uh, from other humans and even more importantly, because we really devalue that, we also separate ourselves aggressively from, from, from the non-human world. And in this process of taking ourselves so seriously in our endeavors to become these flourishing human beings on a hero's journey to, I don't know what kind of accomplishment, um, we are destroying the ecosphere. <laughs> but we are profoundly, you're profoundly dependent on it. When the ecosphere dies, we die. Then our project of making meaning will just be, it will just end. It will just be over. So I'm wondering what kind of reorientation is necessary to... uh, to uh, to live a life that, and, and I think the Bodhisattva ideal really points into a very, very good direction. It may need to be spelled out more specifically um, for our times, you know. It's, a, it's an old ideal, uh, so some update may be necessary. <clears throat> but the fundamental orientation to recognize suffering and dedicate yourself to uh, freedom from suffering, to be free of delusion, which means from all the kind of stories and fantasies we're telling ourselves, to actually get in touch with those dharma gates, those int- attentional moments in which you in which you strip your mind from these fantasies and you actually feel what's real, what's most real. And to then uh, orient yourself to the benefit of all beings, human and non-human, as an undivided meshwork that constitutes life that we, um, you know, that manifests as this person here and as that person there. (coughs) Something to consider. Thank you.